Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. I'm Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times, and I'm talking to Kit Deval, the award-winning author of The Trick to Time, and My Name is Leon. The podcast was recorded in Dublin's Smock Alley Theatre as part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. Welcome, Kit. Kit Dewal was born in Birmingham in 1960 to an Irish mother and a father from St Kitts in the Caribbean. She was a late starter as a published author, 55 when My Name is Leon came out in 2016, but she's made up for lost time winning the Irish Novel of the Year Award at Listowel Writers Week and being shortlisted for both the Desmond Elliott Prize and the Costa First Novel Award. Uh, the audiobook was voiced by Lenny Henry, who is making it into a television drama, mm-hmm. I think, in January. Is yeah. that right, um, her second novel, The Trick to Time, was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction even before it came out in March this year. As well as her success as a writer, she has also fought to raise the issue of exclusion and elitism in literature, donating part of her advance for My Name is Leon to set up a scholarship for a working class writer to do an MA in creative writing at Birkbeck College, which is part of the University of London. And also, she has crowdfunded an anthology of working-class writing, which will include contributions from Irish writers Lisa McInerney and Paul McVeigh, and also an unpublished writer who is a niece of Brendan Behan. I didn't know that. Yeah, done my research. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kit, um, abortion isn't a theme in either My Name is Leon or The Trick to Time. But the complications of childbirth are, and motherhood, Mm -hmm. the messy, sometimes tragic realities of life, the trauma of stillbirth, parents who are unable to cope, neglected children, the need for fostering and adoption. So on the day that is in it, as Ireland has voted to repeal its constitutional ban on abortion, could I ask you for your reaction, first of all, to that and your thoughts on the subject generally? I'm delighted that um, women have um, been given rights over their own body, which everyone should have. That's a a human right. And also that Ireland has been so compassionate and forward-thinking, as they were, with gay marriage. It, to me, is a real indication of a new Ireland, forward-thinking, ahead of its time, young, vibrant, and not just young. I mean, some of the interviews I've seen and some of the photographs that I've seen of people my mum's age. My mum would never vote yes. But um, people of my mother's age are saying, absolutely, you know, this is a a new world, this is a new way of thinking. I think they've uh, come out of the yoke of the oppression sometimes of the church, not always of the church. And I think it's a fabulous day. I was up way too late looking at the results Mm. and I had a little bottle of something from the minibar. And I thought, should I drink it? Because it was only the exit polls. They've been wrong before. And I remember being here, actually, in Dublin on the day of the Brexit vote. And I was asked on radio, um, what do you think about the Brexit vote? And I went, it's a piece of rubbish. It'll never happen. I thought it was posturing by David Cameron. And everybody, to me, was nobody would vote for Brexit. How ridiculous. And of course, that was a shock. So I did not celebrate last night until, you know, I had the confirmation this morning. I thought it was great. 
Um, I didn't actually realise I had those themes in my books about motherhood and how difficult it was. So that's a bit of a strange thing for me to think about. I'll think about it now. Yeah. I suppose working with um, people in the criminal justice system and in the family justice system, and I was a magistrate for a long time, doing um, youth work and doing divorce and family breakdown. And I have seen really the pressures that there are on women um, to look after their children, to make ends meet, to keep families together. And it, what always used to interest me, especially in, in family law, is the little attention that was paid to fathers. Like, no one says there's a bad father. It's like bad mothers. You know, the pressure that women have on, you know, five, five a day vegetables stamping and cutting out things and making sure your children look right and have a nice house and look good and have a career. All those things just loaded onto women at the same time uh, as looking after their children. And my mother had five and my grandmother had nine children. And I think I've just seen all the time how hard women have to work to keep the family together. And then when they fail to, for all sorts of reasons, how censorious, how hard society comes down on women who have very often done it under the most straightened circumstances. So that's a very long answer <laughs> to a short question, uh, but there's a lot to say. Surely. Um, could I ask you a bit about your, your background then? How did you become a writer? Because typically, perhaps, you imagine a writer growing up in a home full of books um, where you're encouraged to read and maybe to write as well. Yeah. But you grew up in a home where there was only the Bible and the news of the world, is that correct? Correct, yes, two great publications. Mm. <laughs> um, so the Bible we had to read uh, daily and I've read it so many times. Um, What's your favourite book in it? <laughs> That's a question. Favourite book? I suppose it would be Proverbs mm. because it's not very religious. Um, Proverbs is more like a common sense book of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, although I do love the music of the language of the Bible. Mm. Some very beautiful cadence to the King James Version particularly. Um, but no, it was a torture. It was terrible. I hated it. Um, and one of the games we used to play is, is, as really young children, probably seven or eight, is to re recite all the books of the Bible. And, mm. you know, around First Kings, Second Kings and First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, you got sort of confused. If you got that right, it was a quite straight run mm. then to the minor books just before Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, and then there was the News of the World. And the News of the World in those days had sexy bits in it. Mm -hmm. So you would try and sneak that off my dad when he was asleep in front of the fire and just see. I mean, sexy by... In the 70s, sexy was not sexy now. You know, it was just tittle-tattle. Um, and that's all we had in the house. We never had a book, ever. Um, so I didn't read at all till I was in my early 20s. Um, and read a lot then. The prompt was you were working for a solicitor who introduced you to mostly to the type of books that he liked, which were military or, or war books. Yeah, so, so the prompt actually was that I stopped taking drugs. So about 50... I left home when I was 16. Mm -hmm. Left school when I was 15, left home when I was 16. And till I was 21, it was sex, drugs and rock and roll, and it was great. Mm -hmm. um, I managed to escape the really, really 
hard drugs, heroin, so forth. Um, and, you know, didn't die of any venereal disease, as far as I know. Um, but I did take a lot of drugs, and I, did, I was wild. Mm -hmm. And around 21, I had a couple of bad experiences, and I thought, that's it, no more drugs. But life's boring without drugs. Mm. Um, so I thought, I've got to find something else to fill my time. And I said to my boss, I was working at the time for a criminal lawyer as a minion, and I said, just give me 10 books to read. And he had spent many, most of his life in the army. So he said, oh, yeah, here's a great list. Not. Mm. Um, so it was The Siege of Krishnapur, Three Men in a Boat, The Red Badge of Courage. I read them all. I mean, you know, they were actually really good, but my heart did sink. And, but in there, there was also Madame Bovary. Mm -hmm. And there was um, Therese Racambay, um, Emile Zola. And that was it. I was off. Mm -hmm. I found the, the others were okay, but those two really stuck. And I, I was off then. And what I did notice about the 10 books that he gave me is that they were all black spined penguin classics. Mm -hmm. And because I'd had no education in reading, I just went back to the bookshop then, which was called Dylan's, uh, the precursor to Waterstones. And I just bought the next five black spines and the next five and mm -hmm. the next five. Mm -hmm until I'd just been through, not all of them, but a couple of hundred. Um, oh, and then I thought, oh, actually the pale, there's also the, the modern classics, they mm -hmm. were pale green, started on the pale green. Um, read loads of those. By then I was probably, I don't know, getting on for 35, at 42, 40, sorry, 37, adopted my first child, 41, adopted the second. And the second child was really very ill. Mm -hmm. um, he was a very ill child and I gave up work to look after him, which was possibly the most boring thing I ever did in my life. It mm. was, he was lovely and he was a, a great child, but I can't do mother and baby groups. That's not me mm -hmm. at all. Um, so I started to write badly, really badly, but I did... You know, that's what really started me writing. So it was actually the pram in the hall or the near equivalent to it was actually the inspiration to get Yeah, to it was bored. I mean, I was bored. You know, mm -hmm. I, I loved my children, but I, I'm not a potato stamper. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, cutting out clothes all day and I can't plump the cushions all day. And to be honest, when I started writing, I thought I'd be good. Mm -hmm. I was shocked how <laughs> bad I was. I thought I've read these hundreds of books, you know, mm -hmm. and I... I know good writing, so I'd write these sentences at nine o'clock at night when the children were asleep. And I thought, God, that's so good and really mm -hmm. great. And then I'd read it in the morning. It was like, what were you mm. thinking? Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. You know, I mean, maybe it's arrogant of me to say, but I thought it was easy. I thought it would be easy. The literary equivalent of cutting your arm off. Yes. It was, it was just a real shock that... This beautiful picture that I had in my head or these really profound things that I wanted to say didn't just come through my arm and onto the page. Well, were you trying to write literary novels? I, I saw you describe them as thrillers, no? They were thrillers, yeah. My first book was... <laughs> I'm so ashamed to say this. Um, it was a book about a Norwegian gangster. Um, actually, it was good. You know, it was mm. good. It wasn't my best thing I've ever written. Um, so that was a thriller about a nightclub in the in the 1980s with a Norwegian gangster in it. It was mm -hmm. great. Then the second one, 
Scandi Noir. Mm. Do you know Scandi Noir? Obviously, I'm talking way before Scandi Noir. Mm. Noir. There was no such thing in those days. Avant la lettre. Hmm? Sorry, before, <laughs> before it was fashionable. Bef- yeah, before it was fashionable. Um, and I still like the guy, the Norwegian gangster, but he's just going to have to park himself for a while. Mm. Um, I tried to get that published. Surprise, surprise. My work of genius was not recognised. Mm. Um, and then I wrote another one, which was about a moneylender. Again, it was a, it was in fact, it was a, it was a moneylender from Belfast. Um, and that didn't get anywhere at all. And all the time I was doing that, I was also writing short stories and flash fiction. Mm-hmm. Had some of those published, well published, won mm-hmm. competitions and everything. Um, and then I wrote My Name is Leon, and I wrote My Name is Leon out of desperation. I realised I the class, the, the thrillers weren't going to cut it. By that stage, had you done the creative writing course? I did the creative writing degree after the two thrillers had failed miserably. Okay. Um, and did that make a huge difference? No. No? You wouldn't recommend it? I wouldn't recommend it now. It, I mean, in England, it's £9,000, and I just think... Waste of money? I wouldn't say a waste of money because I've sponsored someone to do one. I was going to and say, some yeah. of them <laughs> some of them are very, very good. Mine was not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not taught well, I don't think. I loved it because I had this whole year mm-hmm. with other people that were doing the same thing. And it was more to do with the camaraderie of the other. Other people have said yeah, that, yeah. As opposed to teaching you to write well. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had a lot of teaching how to write well. Maybe you can't. Maybe that's, you know, that's still an ongoing debate about whether anyone can tell you to help mm-hmm. you to write well. Certainly, spending a year writing, that's what was good for me. And I would say to anyone doing a creative writing degree, choose a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, see what's happened to the students that have done it beforehand. And also, throw yourself into it. I really threw myself into mine. So if that wasn't the transformational transformational moment, what was, do you think? Or was it just plugging away and slowly getting better? Um, I think it was a, a Samuel Beckett, you know, um, fail better. Mm-hmm. Keep failing, keep failing and keep going. And I remember when my second novel uh, was rejected, I actually got sacked by an agent. There's not many people that can <laughs> say that. Um, she had seen my Norwegian gangster novel. She said, no, that's not it. Then she said, write another one. So I wrote The Belfast Moneylender. And she said, no, that's not it. Then she went on maternity leave and told me not to wait for her. Um, I know, it was a blow. And it was at that point, really, it was at that point that I just thought, I'm rubbish, you know. Mm. I'm kidding myself. And maybe I can write short stories. I just can't do the long versions. Um, but it was failing and being determined. And also, mm-hmm. I had never had an ambitious bone in my body before I started to write. My brothers and sisters wouldn't play Monopoly with me because I'd give them money. How much mm-hmm. do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a house. I was just a shit competitor in every way. Mm-hmm. When I started writing, that all changed. Mm-hmm. You know, I really was and am ambitious. You know, I, I want to be published. Mm-hmm. I. I want people to read my books. Um, and that's, you know, a lot of people don't say that. It feels like, a, you know, a dirty word or some mm. bad confession, mm. but mm. my ambition was to have a book in Waterstones. Mm-hmm. You know, that was it. And when I saw it in Waterstones, it didn't even matter about the money. I was just like, I've done mm-hmm. it. I've done that thing. Was there a sense you said that you, um, 
about the two early works, the, the thrillers, that they weren't written in your voice or with your yeah. heart. So yeah. was it something that you were sort of going for a genre that you thought might yeah. be successful? I think I was going for the genre that I really understood very well because when I was a child, we lived in a house with very little heating um, and there's one warm room in the house and that's the room where my dad sat. Mm. And my dad was obsessed with what we call daddy detectives. They'd be called film noir now, I suppose. Mm. So he used to watch the Maltese Falcon and, you know, the Postman Always Rings Twice, all those sorts of films. And we had to sit there, the five of us, in at absolute silence if you turned your head mm. he'd look at you as if say don't make any noise because this is before pause and rewind mm -hmm. this is you know the days where it was on now it was going to play yeah. then it's off so we had to sit there like this in total <laughs> silence and he would turn around to us halfway through the film and say did you see the gun on the wall we go yes dad yeah you know it was like an education mm. really in film noir so i really understood that genre. Mm -hmm. So I thought, if there's anything that I'm going to know, it will be the genre of the film noir, of, mm -hmm. the, of the thriller. So that's what I was trying to do, really. I was, you know, I think it was a shortcut to putting my heart on the page. So how did you find your voice? Um, through being kicked in the teeth, I think, um, of not of failing, you know, mm -hmm. and I just thought, what isn't working? Why aren't these books being picked up? And also, the short stories, I felt... I did have my voice in the short stories. I just couldn't sustain it over 80,000 words. Mm -hmm. So I think it was two things. It was desperation because the other things hadn't worked. Um, but it was also the subject matter partly. I know I, my name is Leon started life as a short story. And I knew that there was something different about it. I was scared of the subject matter because mm -hmm. I've got two adopted children. I work in adoption. Um, I've seen the heartbreak and the difficulties uh, that adopted people face, birth mothers, adopted parents, children. And I didn't, I was sort of scared of it. I was scared of like, God, imagine getting that wrong. Imagine, you know, it's not entertainment for some people. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, we, we all might pick up, my name is Leon, read it, great, put it down leave it on the lilo for the next person on the beach. Mm -hmm. But for some people, that's a really painful story, and I knew that. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty scared of it. But at the same time, being scared isn't bad. Mm -hmm. Being the scared of it... High. Yeah, it makes you take it bloody seriously mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. makes you get it right, and it puts respect for your characters on the page. So maybe that's why it worked. Mm -hmm. And it worked with a vengeance because it went to an auction, yes. a six-way auction, and yeah. a high six-figure sum, which is, yeah. you know, in terms of when, say, an Irish published novel, if it makes four figures, is pretty much yeah. uh, standard. So were you shocked or do you kind of think, yes, I have now oh reached my, my level? Oh, my God, I was so shocked. So my publisher sent, my agent sent the book out on Monday and on Wednesday she said we've had an offer um, and the offer she gave me I was like thank god for that let's take it and she said no no I think we could do better and I disagreed with her and I said look take it because I don't want them to read it twice and change their mind um, just take it sign wherever you got to sign give me the money let's get going and she said no 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 we'll go to auction and I don't know if uh, any of the audience know what it's like to go to auction, but when you go to auction, you have to go to each person 
that's making an offer, before they put their final offer in, you have to go and sit in front of this big table uh, and on round that table you've got digital and you've got marketing and mm. you've got foreign sales and you've got them all sitting round and they go round in a circle and they ask you a question. Uh, you know, how was it to write this and what about that? And they all go, oh, your book was great, your book was great. And the first one, I was like, wow. By the sixth one, I was just like, you know, I was shocked. Mm. And I also almost didn't believe it. I just thought there was something else going on, like something could be in the news about adoption or why were they interested. And then when the final figure came in, I, I could choose between two publishers. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted Penguin because of my reading history. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just a shock, you know. I still really didn't want them to read it twice because I thought they'd change <laughs> their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, if they really looked at it, they go, oh, hang on. Um, but, it, you know, apparently it passed the read twice test. And one of the first things you did then was to set up the creative writing scholarship yeah. for um, a working class writer um, yes. who is Stephen Morrison Burke. Well, he, he was the one who He's the one that won the scholarship, won yeah. And he's written a very nice piece. He just sent it in today, which we'll publish in the Irish Times next week. But tell me then about... Uh, your thoughts on the underrepresentation of working class writers or working class lives in fiction? So when I was reading, uh, you know, doing my reading of hundreds of the classics, it never occurred to me um, to, to think about class or... I, I did know that there was no one from my background that I have ever, ever, ever read about. Even, you know, reading about Jane Eyre, you know, who's, if, if you Google actually poor people in classic fiction, mm -hmm. Jane Eyre comes up. Mm -hmm. You know, this woman that played the piano, spoke French, was a governess, you know, that's yeah. not poor. Mm -hmm. Jane Eyre probably had a maid emptying a bedpan. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about. That's where I come from. You know, I wasn't even working class when I was a child. We mm -hmm. weren't working class. Working class people were rich. Mm -hmm. They were had so much more money than we had. We were sub-working class. Mm -hmm. My parents both worked, but they were both immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, we lived in a, a house in a very nice area, but it was, we didn't even have lino, you know, we were poor, poor people. Um, but my background was never represented in literature, and even people like George Orwell, who wrote really eloquently and sincerely about being poor, himself went to Eton. Yeah. So it was always this working class experience translated by somebody who had the education mm -hmm. and the time and the opportunity to write. And I just thought that was shit. Mm -hmm. You know, so th there's good writers from working class backgrounds and why aren't we given the opportunity? Except when, you know, what happened to me is a dream. It's fantastic. There's a lot of people like me who don't have that opportunity, who don't happen to have written something that happens to get picked up, that happens to go to auction. Mm -hmm. And I was really, it was really a, a throwaway comment that I made to somebody in The Observer. I think the first interview I gave after my publication, I just said, where are all the working class writers? And it just seemed to hit a nerve with mm -hmm. uh, other people. There's loads of people talking about working class writing. I'm not the first person, mm -hmm. but I think just because of what was happening to me at the time, it seemed that I kicked something off. I, you know, I didn't. It just, mm -hmm. I just said the right thing at the right time. And tell me about the anthology then. What, what format will it take or what do you think it could achieve? 
Um, well, I was really concerned that, you know, for Stephen Morrison-Burke, who got the scholarship, that was great. But for the scholarship, when all these applicants came in for the scholarship, um, I said no to a lot of people. And I was really concerned that one person's got the scholarship and lots of people haven't. So I wanted yeah. to do something else. So I asked all the working class, really well-published writers that I knew, mm -hmm. um, would they be willing to be in an anthology? And for every well-known writer that was in there, I could get one unpublished writer to go in. So it's an anthology of uh, 32 writers, um, and they've all written memoir. The reason we ask them to write memoir is because how else do we know if someone's working class? And from my perspective, if you can write about being working class, you can't fake that shit. You can't. Mm. You can't. You won't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. You can't pretend. So um, all the working class, all the well-known writers have written about their backgrounds, some fantastic writing, and all the new writers, unpublished, have also written 16 pieces of memoir, and it's absolutely great. And it's pub being published by Unbound. Unbound. It was crowdfunded, yeah. And when is it coming out? Next May. Okay. So a year's time, but we've got all the writers. We're just looking at the cover, and um, yeah, it's just completely humbling. Mm -hmm. You know, these really well-known writers have, you know, they're doing this practically <coughs> for nothing. Yeah. Um, because they believe in it, and they believe that other writers uh, from their background should have the opportunities mm -hmm. that we've had. Is there anything else that you would like to do? Um, I'd like to do one in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, really like to do one in Ireland, so that. Uh, the same issues are for everybody that working class writers find it harder to get published for all sorts of reasons, mm -hmm. bringing up their children, working. Um, and I would also like to make sure that the writers that didn't get in, of which there are many, have some sort of help, have some mm -hmm. sort of mentoring or something anyway. Like, as well as being from a working class or sub-working class, as you describe, you make the point that you're also from um, an ethnic minority background, mm. in fact, two separate ethnic minorities. Like Quite often, um, poverty and immigration and being from an ethnic minority yeah. go together. Yes. Um, could you talk, obviously, like race um, raises its head uh, in both your books in, in different ways. For example, in My Name is Leon, um, the children are separated partly because of the age difference, but also because Leon's um, half-brother is white, whereas, yes. whereas he is um, is mixed race. Um, and then in The Trick to Time, your new book, um, there it's set against a backdrop of the Birmingham bombings and there is anti-Irish racism, yes. um, a backlash afterwards. So could you tell me a bit about your, your own um, pretty unusual background, certainly for the time where um, your mum, as I said, was from an Irish background and your dad from an African-Caribbean background? Yes, so my mother and father <coughs> met on the buses. So my mother was a conductress, my dad was a driver. She thought he looked like Harry Belafonte. Mm. Um, I don't know what he thought of her. Um, he was six foot four and very black and she was five foot and white and Irish, the odd couple in many ways. Mm. Uh, very similar, the black community, the West Indian community, certainly in the Irish community are very similar in their outlooks on life. Um, but my grandmother, my Irish grandmother, um, was horrified, horrified that my mother took up with a black man. She had left Ireland for a better life. Mm -hmm. 
and for my mother to take up with a black monkey, well, she said I didn't come all the way to England for you to take up with a monkey. She put it very eloquently. But my, I mean, my grandmother loved us. You know, mm. she really loved us. She didn't love any other black people, but she certainly loved, mm. she certainly loved us. And she just thought it was a step down. She had come to England for a better life. And, you know, why would you disgrace us like that, was her attitude. My father's mother came over to look after us while my parents worked in a factory mm. afterwards. And we called her Black Nana because we already had one Nana. So mm. Black Nana was similarly horrified that my father had taken up with a white woman because white mm. women were racist. Mm. So why would you do that? She wasn't wrong. She was not wrong. And also my father had left a girlfriend in the West Indies mm. that my grandmother liked mm. and now you've gone with this white woman and you've got these children and what the both grandmothers who hated each other uh, what they both agreed on was that we were neither one thing or the other mm. and we were to be pitied and what a shame they'll never fit in they don't know who they are we used to hear this all the time and fortunately we never internalized it we just thought they were all mad mm -hmm. you know we just there's five of us so when they were on their rants as they very often were both of my parents and my grandparents, you know, we just look at each other like, God, we're so fine, we're so okay. Um, How was it in the wider community, like you've described, being um, the only um, black kids in the Irish Community Centre, yes. the only um, kids with a white, with a white mother in it, the West Indian social social club? Yeah, so you, you definitely knew that you didn't belong at the Irish Community Centre. There was a little bit of racism there, not a lot, but you, you stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm. Um, similarly, in the West Indian Community Centre, all the do's that were there, lots of do's around cricket, you were different. And we looked actually Asian, we looked Pakistani, the big mm. Pakistani immigrant community. And so people thought we were Pakis, and that's what we got called because we certainly weren't West Indian mm. and we weren't white, so you must be a Paki. So we had that. So you're almost doubly discriminated against. You didn't fit in anywhere. You were sort no. of rejected. Completely. Mm. But to be honest, I mean, my mother did a really good job. She used to say to me, you're beautiful, you're great. Mm. They're all mad. And yeah. we believed her. Mm -hmm. We never internalised it, but it mm. was very racist society. Mm. We were spat at. We'd have children run up to us and touch our skin and go, Oh, it hasn't come off. Mm. You know, they thought it was painted on. Uh, it, in a way, we can't imagine now. This is the 60s I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, it's a very different That world. I think most people would probably know, but it's actually the fact that you didn't work, like most other people could retreat into their own community and have yes. a safe space there, whereas you didn't even no have There was no communities that. to retreat into. There was home. Mm. Uh, and we never, we, we didn't go many places. My father never went out with my mom. Mm. ever. Mm. My mother never took my father to the Irish do's that she had with the brothers and sisters. Mm. So they lived their life very separately and we were a tribe. Mm. The five of us, that's who we knew. So did it make you very tightly knit as a family? Very tightly knit. I speak to my brothers and sisters nearly every day. Mm. The five of us are very, very close. Mm. Mm -hmm. Although now it's nothing to be mixed race. It's completely a, a normal phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But back then it was an unusual thing. Like, um, I'm thinking of um, My Name is Leon is set partly against the, the backdrop of the Hansworth riots in, in 81. Yeah. Uh, the Trick to Time obviously touches on the 
um, aftermath of the Birmingham pub bombings in yeah. 74. And there's another uh, short story um, whose name escapes me in which um, Exterior Paint, which yes. is available on the Irish Times website to, to read. Um, and it has uh, the remarkable fact that Malcolm X came to uh, Birmingham um, on a on a mission or whatever just a few days before his assassination back in the States. I'm wondering, is it deliberate to use um, real life events as a hook or an anchor in your fiction? Or does it start with a character and then um, the context comes I later? Never, I never think about the historical context until I've got the character. Mm. Um, and I don't know why I do that. I mean, I, I really can't analyse myself about why I always latch on to some historical events. Certainly they loom large with me, mm. the, the 1981 riots, although I was stoned most of the time. Um, I remember them really well. Uh, you know, they happened at the top of the road where mm. I was living at the time. And there was, in, in my name is Leon, I describe a prickly something in the air. And there really was a prickly something in the air. You know, mm. I remember it, that event. And in the Birmingham pub bombings, obviously my I've got nine Irish uncles and aunts mm. who were young men and women then going out on the town. And the, in the aftermath of the bombings, my uncles didn't go out mm -hmm. because they were getting beaten up. Mm -hmm. And although they all had brummy accents by then, they did have the Irish film, you know, loads yeah. of different words yeah. that were sort of giveaway words. And it was dangerous. It mm -hmm. was dangerous for quite a few months to go out and have an Irish accent mm -hmm. or to go to the Irish pubs, which were more or less deserted mm -hmm. straight afterwards. Mm -hmm. Like there was, in, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar, The Rotters Club by Jonathan Coe, yes. which again has a backdrop of the Birmingham pub bombings. And there's a, a terrible incident in it where an, an Irishman, I think, is killed. Yes. Um, I remember interviewing Catherine O'Flynn, the author of the wonderful What Was Lost. Yes. And her parents are Irish. And I remember her saying about how they had experienced uh, racism. Her dad had a shop. Um, like, what was your personal experience? Were, like, were you affected or were you just more of a witness given that you, maybe you weren't as immediately identifiable? Absolutely. As so the, the day after the pub bombings, I went to school and my bus was diverted around the city centre because of the um, all, all the carnage that had gone on. And so when I got to school, obviously, again, it was before 24-hour news, so no one knew about it till the next day. Mm -hmm. So I went to school, and by then, everybody knew that it was the IRA and the, the bomb. And so I would never keep it a secret, but no one knew I was Irish at school. I went mm -hmm. to a grammar school that was quite posh. And um, so people were talking about the Irish in front of me. Mm -hmm. You know, the dirty Irish, the filthy Irish, the terrorists, they're savages, they're animals. And I remember thinking, shit, you know, obviously mm. no one expected me to be Irish. I didn't say I was Irish, I was mm. a coward. Um, but my cousins, yeah, they had it pretty bad at school. And they, we, my own name is O'Loughlin, which is mm -hmm. quite an Irish name, although that's my dad's name, mm -hmm. bizarrely. Um, but my Irish um, cousins have Irish names. The uh, Doyles, are they? Or some they're Doyles or Flarties or mm. O'Connells, um, Shaughnessy, you know, the married Irish people. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, very conspicuously Irish. And they had it hard. I didn't, mm -hmm. like I say, just because I didn't look Irish. And how long did that last? Like, we're talking at several years or...? Immediately, uh, I'd say... Maybe six months, it was very bad. I think there was mm -hmm. another bomb sl 
just after that somewhere else. Um, it was a bad time as long as the IRA were active, mm -hmm. really. There would mm -hmm. always be people that were taught very much as people talked about Muslims now, where they'd see no distinction whatsoever between Muslim and terrorist. Mm -hmm. In those days, there was no distinction between Irishmen and terrorist. Yeah, there's a sense of it being a suspect community, I think. Totally, the, yeah. The and that you knew something, you knew someone that was in the IRA. You yeah. know, they expected everyone was harbouring someone under the mattress. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. um, Sorry, um, there's a very strong phrase that you use, I'm not sure in what context, um, you said, um, my existence is my resistance. Could you tell me where that came from? Or I think it was a Native American? Yeah, um, Native American, slogan. absolutely. My, my daughter that I adopted is um, Native American, half Native American from the Sioux tribe, except I've been told not to say Sioux, it's Lakota. Mm -hmm. Been told off about that more than once. Um, and very much um, the Native Americans in the US have you know, had a terrible time mm -hmm. from the government and yet persist. You know, they will fight for their rights. They are fighting at the moment about an oil pipeline that's been put in South Dakota, which is a, a reservation, which is mm -hmm. a protected community. And obviously the American government don't give a shit because they treat them as savages still. They have what, some of the worst um, life outcomes of any community in America, uh, severely um, compromised in terms of health, education, etc. Uh, but they persist and they're still there. Mm -hmm. They're still there and they still say this is us and this is where we belong and we have a right to be here, as much as more so than a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. And their existence is their resistance to the politics of the day and to that awful man, I'll try not to swear, mm -hmm. that has so much power in America. And I similarly feel that minority communities and disadvantaged people and the working classes, just by being present, and saying, this is me, mm -hmm. and this is my experience, and I have value, and I have a right to be here, and a right to expression, is a resistance to all the forces that there are against us that say we don't matter, mm -hmm. or that we're not valued, or our stories aren't valued. You've said that um, one of the things that you like to do in your fiction is to take, say, a big event, like, for example, 9-11, yeah. and then something small, a personal tragedy set against the backdrop yeah. of a larger national yes. um, event. Um, could you tell me a little bit um, about that, um, where that comes from? I don't know where it comes from, but I think, for example, on the night of the pub bombings in Birmingham, absolutely tragic, terrible events for many people. Mm -hmm. But on that same night, there was someone giving birth, there was somebody falling in love, there mm -hmm. was somebody across the other side of town um, breaking up with their partner, somebody else died naturally. And I'm fascinated that while everybody's looking at this big event, this massive thing, mm -hmm. quietly something else, somewhere else there's a domestic tragedy or um, just something really significant happening to someone else. And in many ways, those little small events that happen to ordinary people are hijacked. Mm -hmm. Someone was born on 9-11. Somebody got married on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And 
their date has been hijacked by the events that happened because they were so extraordinary mm -hmm. and so amazing or so catastrophic. And it always interests me about how people experience that and how do they negotiate the fact that on the day of the pub bombings, I've got my wedding photos or I, my baby died or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. It just interests me. Ordinary people really interest me. I don't think there's an ordinary person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's extraordinary. Um, but some people just don't have the attention, they don't have the light shine on their, on their lives. In the trick to time, like one of the tragedies is, um, like I would say, one of the themes um, of the trick to time is loss or dealing with the long tail of grief. Um, like for example, Mona, the main character, she suffers her own personal tragedy uh, when she's giving birth the night of the pub bombing, mm -hmm. and also um, her husband William is attacked for being yes. Irish um, that night. Like, there's a really strong uh, line um, in the book that really struck me that uh, Mona didn't like, she was planning, she runs a shop, and she was planning uh, for Christmas sales, but she said she didn't like to think about November. And that was the, the time when her own personal tragedy has happened, and that sense of grief having, you know, repercussions down yes. through the years where the calendar month of November for decade after decade would be associated in her mind, yes. you know, with, with loss. Absolutely. And November, you know, perhaps the month of the dead with Remembrance Sunday, with um, the bombing, the Birmingham pub bombings themselves, of course, and All Souls Day, all of those kind of national or sort of global yes. things. Whereas for her, it is the, the personal tragedy, yeah. tragedy, as you've said. What about, um, like, there are a lot of, of tragedies um, in the book. She, she loses her, her mum very early on. In fact, the title comes um, yes. from how her dad speaks to her about the importance of spending time with her mum when she's dying. Well, he mm -hmm. doesn't obviously say that, but could you talk um, a little bit about then the, the theme of grief or loss? Yeah. Um you put it much more eloquently than I could. I was enjoying listening to that because I didn't know about the All Souls Day. I loved it. It was mm. great. Um, you've said it all. Really, for me, um, I think lots of things have repercussions in our lives and we learn to live with them. You know, we, you, know you might not actually say to yourself, I hate November, um, but you just might find that month a struggle because it's the same weather or it's the same feeling, or it's the same occasions that bring up um, times of grief for mm. people. We, I, my mother changed from being uh, a Catholic when I was six to being a Jehovah's Witness. And when, so pre her becoming a Jehovah's Witness, we had Christmas. Mm. And I can remember a Christmas. And then when she became a Jehovah's Witness, Christmas was banned. Mm. Um, and every Christmas, that I, so I left home when I was 16, and Christmas, I mean, my God, the tree that I bought mm. and the baubles and the pre over the top, mm. way, way, way over the top. And when my children, when I had children, finally, it was a ridiculous amount of money I spent on them, trying to make up for that thing that actually I could never make up for. I needed to have Christmas from 6 to 16 in my own life. And so I tried to recreate this ridiculous Victorian nonsense for my children to heal me, mm. to heal what I didn't have, that I would go to school in January 
after the Christmas holidays and everyone's like, ah, oh, I got this, got this Barbie, got that. What did you get? Nothing. Mm. What did you have for Christmas dinner? Because you'd put the telly on and you'd see the fat turkey and, the, and we were like beans on toast. It was grim. It was horrible. And I, I, I have that sense. I definitely have a sense of loss about Christmas. Mm. Really over the top about it. And I had no birthdays. Mm. So we had no birthdays. We had no Christmas. We had no Easter. Why did she become a Jehovah's Witness? Because um, this woman knocked on... So my mum got together with my dad and she had three children out of wedlock. And she was a Catholic. You know, mm. she took that... She felt very uh, judged by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. She felt very oppressed by that knowledge. Uh, she then got married to my dad, but short, shortly after that, uh, a woman knocked the door um, and promised to wipe every tear from her eye and she would be accepted. Mm -hmm. And the one thing Jehovah's Witnesses are very, very good at is intermarriage, interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. And so my mother felt when she went to this meeting hall for the first time in her life uh, being having black children, she felt accepted. And I think that sustained her through what is a pretty grim, really joyless religion, mm. uh, where celebrations are banned completely. You know, no Christmas, no birthdays, no Easter, no Guy Fawkes Day, no Mother's Day, no St Valentine's Day, no bonfire night. Mm. There was, it's a celebration for his own. Um, but she felt accepted by that particular God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean... I really wish she hadn't done it. She hadn't opened the door. <laughs> you know, I'd have had a ninth birthday present. Still hurts. Mm. Um, another thing that's really striking in your writing is that you're very strong on a child's perspective, like in The Trick to Time. Mona's childhood is very well captured, but particularly uh, Leon, I think, is one of the great child protagonists in contemporary, contemporary literature. I think that's maybe what has captured so many people's um, imagination. I was just thinking like he's got a very perceptive eye, like for example, he notices how Sylvia um, describes her sister, who's his foster care, as Armo, which he realizes is excluding him from the relationship. Um, and then he also notices how his mum when she's asking him a question, is nodding at him, encouraging him or coaching him to that, that the answer that she's looking for is yes. And it made me kind of think, do you think children and writers maybe um, have the same attention to detail, um, that they pick up on things? Is there is there some kind of a, a similarity in the child's eye, seeing something maybe yeah. for the first time on a writer? I, th I think what children and writers have in common is looking under the words mm. so you know hi how are you and you know if someone likes you or not you mm -hmm. know they can smile they can be sincere look sincere they can ask you all these questions and you can come away knowing that person doesn't like you yeah. you don't know how and children i think have that sense amplified yeah. much more than we do we learn to be polite and children just know uh, what's under the smile. They sense what's phony or whatever. Really sense what's phony very, very easily. And, and I think writers have the... Certainly good writers have mm. the ability to watch and look at people's behaviour. I love going to cafes. Mm -hmm. And I like watching the interaction of two people whose conversation I can't hear. Do they really like each other? Is that an argument? And we've all done it. Come on, mm. you know, you see an mm. argument in a cafe and you can't concentrate on anything else. You know, they're arguing. Mm. And you can see the frostiness between two mm -hmm. people just mm -hmm. from observing body language mm -hmm. and uh, 
watchers, children are great watchers. I was certainly a great watcher. Mm -hmm. um, body language can give a lot away and intonation. You use the phrase micro-tells when you're describing what you like about Isaac Bashevis singer yes. and the kind of the little details. Yeah, fascinating. I love that. Uh, and I think Chekhov too, he would describe, there's a short story by Chekhov who describes a man buttoning his jacket. And it's just like, um, with sorrow. How can you button a jacket with sorrow? But you can. Mm. Um, and it tells you something, the way someone does something, maybe the way someone moves the hair behind the ear or something and you know something about that person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I, I used to train judges um, in a different life and one of the things we had to do is um, we had a, an expert come and talk about how to tell if someone's lying and this person was a um, advisor to the FBI mm -hmm. And it, this was non-verbal, obviously, not talking, but what might someone do when they lie? You know, they might do this or they might move in a certain way. Mm. And then when they go in the witness box, they were sort of trying to coach us about how you could tell if someone was lying. And actually, you can't mm. really tell unless you know someone. So if someone, if you know someone, you know if they're lying. If you don't know someone, you don't know that every time they lie, they do that. Mm. or whatever they do. So I was always fascinated by people's behaviour mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. what that could tell you, and certainly what that could tell you if you're writing about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, I don't know where this came from, but I was thinking when I was um, reading your work, what do you think is your strongest asset as a writer? Is it your imagination or your memory? In other words, is it stuff that you're just making up, or is it stuff that you're recalling and somehow reworking? My God, um, my strongest, uh, I think it helps to be immature. So I've, I'm very in touch with being a child. So um, I think if I write about children, well, it's because I'm immature and I still would laugh if someone tripped up on the street. Mm. You know, I wouldn't mean to, but I find, you know, slapstick and silly things, mm. I'm very, very silly. Um, and I think that helps to have a sense of wonder about things mm -hmm. and to still find it interesting even now to examine a childhood incident that I might have witnessed. So maybe it's, maybe it's recall, recalling mm -hmm. childhood, mm -hmm. yeah. There's an interesting thing that you, that you wrote um, somewhere, not you know, talking about writing this idea that you write what you know, whereas you said, actually, that could be quite dull, you know, yeah. how, how interesting are our lives. Yeah. Um, but instead, you put it differently. You said, write what you know to be true. Yes. Could you enlarge on that? Yeah, so I think, I don't think that, you know, when people say write what you know, um, it tends to have the effect of confining us to our lives, our town or our job or whatever we've done with our lives. Um, and that just, you know, what would I write about? It'd be boring. Mm -hmm. Boring woman goes to Tesco's, comes home, does the vacuuming. You know, that is my life. Um, so we, you have to write what you know to be true of human nature, I think. Mm. So you can put an ordinary person in an extraordinary circumstance where they might commit a murder. And if you know that person you know that they would be devastated or excited or try to get away with it or try and conceal it or go and admit it to the police. Mm -hmm. So it's more about what, know what you, write what you know to be true of humans, of human behaviour, of human emotion. 
and put that down rather than just confining it to your small town or your small family or mm -hmm. your small life. Another um, outgroup, if you, if you like, of, of writers is the older writer. Yes. Um, like, as I said earlier on, you started writing, well, you were first published um, when you were in your mid-50s. Mm -hmm. um, Joanna Walsh, the, the writer, has campaigned against prizes yes. and grants and so forth that are for, for new writers, but actually they're for they young exclude, writers yeah. and exclude older writers maybe starting for the first time, which may very often actually also be working class writers who only That's then exactly have got why. the space or whatever to afford the time to write. Yeah. Um, on the plus side, what do you think an older writer starting off um, brings to the party as a writer that maybe a writer in their 20s doesn't? I think um, older, so I can only speak about myself, but I certainly know that when I was in my 20s, I would have been arrogant. Um, I would have thought everything had an easy answer. Everything mm. was black and white. There was a yes or no, that was right, that was wrong. And I think as I've got older, I just realised how little I know about the world and how little, how difficult it is to make a judgment about someone else's life. And I think that gives you a certain humility. And if there is any such thing, it gives you a certain wisdom mm. about life. Um, so I'm very, very glad I didn't start writing when I was young. It would have been even worse than the Norwegian <laughs> gangster, which is hard to imagine. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think also, as you say, it's, it's a time when a lot of working class writers, maybe their children have grown up and left home. Maybe there isn't such a pressure on earning a living and they can take a little bit out, a little bit of time out mm -hmm, to write. So mm -hmm. lots of those prizes that are for under 35s or under mm -hmm, 25s mm -hmm. do exclude working class people. And a lot of uh, older people, you know, they bring a lot to literature. There, there's a lot of wisdom in not everybody, you know, it's not an automatic right that you become wise when you get older. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly, I think it does give you a perspective on life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What next? So I've been asked to write uh, a young adult novel. Um, new landscape for me. I don't know if I can do it, but I'll try. Um, and it's, um, I was asked to reimagine one of the classics. Anyone that knows me knows that I love classic literature. So I was asked to choose one of the classics mm -hmm. to rewrite, um, to do a response to. So not rewrite, but do a response to the classics. And I could choose any of the classics I liked. And I wanted to choose Great Expectations first, because I love it. And it was going to be Miss Havisham as a young woman. Then I had a look and saw how many people had done mm. Miss Havisham as a young woman. So I chose the book that I thought no one would touch, uh, which is Moby Dick. And so I've done a response mm -hmm. to Moby Dick from the point of view of Ishmael. Great stuff. I, I wonder, is there a connection between YA, young adult fiction, and you know your gift for capturing the voice of of children in particularly in My Name is Leon? Let's hope, because I have no idea what I'm doing with YA. I've just started it, and mm. it's a challenge, definitely. Um, I've never written... When I wrote My Name is Leon, for me, I was writing for adults mm -hmm. completely. Never imagined that children would read it. Um, so I hope that I can speak to the voice of uh, a 14 to 17-year-old, mm. but I have... No idea, you could all be the judge when it comes out. Yeah. 
So you actually, you said that um, you've discovered that young people are actually reading My Name is Leon and they yes. are getting the two the two layers, what, what he sees and also what he doesn't see. I've had a lot of feedback from uh, readers and from schools who say they're reading My Name is Leon, complete with swear words. Mm. Um, and that the, the children get the what I intended for the adults, that he's thinking this is happening and the adults are going, no, that's happening. Mm -hmm. And the children are getting it completely, as well as understanding Leon. They're also realising that he's not understanding mm -hmm. the bigger picture. And the other thing that you're working on is a collection of short stories. Yes, I'm working on a collection of short stories based on the B, the minor characters or the B characters from both novels, The Trick to Time and Leon. So I have done a short story, for example, about Tom from The Trick to Time who got injured with, um, with William. Mm -hmm. And I've done a short story about Sylvia and who she was and how she became Sylvia. And I've done a short story about Tufty. Um, and they will all be in this anthology, which is called Supporting Cast. Mm -hmm. And that will come out next year. And these stories come from actually from your background research or writing in terms of so that your minor characters aren't just ciphers that perform a, a role, walk on, walk off. Totally, I can't stand the, the walk on character, it drives me mad. So I do character studies for most of the B characters so that any character in my book, any character, the most minor character, someone could say to me, who is that? And I'll say, oh, that's Harry, you know, he lives there, he did that. And he might just be on for, for one tiny moment in the... But I, I have to know him. He won't mm -hmm. be in there for anyone else, but I have to know who Harry is. OK. And one last question. You were once a backing singer for which band? <laughs> UB40. Long time ago, but mm -hmm. they were not famous. And tragically, there is no video available anywhere. Fortunately, there is no video anywhere. There's a couple of recordings. Um, I was going out with the keyboard player at the time, but they were not famous at all. Mm. They were recording on a, in a, in a bed sit in Moseley. I lived in Moseley. And uh, he was gorgeous. I mean, mostly that was the reason I was doing it. Mm. Um, and I wasn't bad, you know, but certainly when they got famous, they dropped me like a hot stone. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a great, funny time. You know, we were mostly stoned. That's what you have to understand. Mm. So, thank God, there is no video of that. It's way before you could record anything on your phone. That would have been a major undertaking. Mm. Thank God. Great stuff. You've been listening to author Kit Deval in conversation with myself, Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. You can read a lot more by and about Kit if you visit the book club section of irishtimes.com forward slash books. Next month's selection is Grace by Paul Lynch, which has just won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award at Listowel Writers Week and has been shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction.